But first up, it's kind of a sad day today at the Vancouver Aquarium. It is the last day of public operations at the aquarium. They are going to shut down their public programs after today. They are trying to come up with a new model to survive going forward here. Of course, the aquarium has taken a real beating during this pandemic. Have a listen to this. This is from Save the Vancouver Aquarium. Vancouver Aquarium has been part of the fabric of our city since 1956. In that time, we have connected over 40 million guests with our oceans. Rescued, rehabilitated, and released over 3,000 animals. Equipped over 3,000 partners with the tools to choose sustainable seafood. Cleaned over 27,000 beaches. Conducted groundbreaking research and educated four million future leaders about the importance of ocean life. During this time, the best way to send love is from a distance. So we shut our doors on March 17th, but we are unable to turn off the lights and walk away. Our 70,000 beloved residents still need us, so we have kept up all operations necessary to ensure their welfare. As a nonprofit, without help, we are at risk of permanent closure. Right, yeah, last day of public operations at the aquarium. Let's talk about the plan to save the aquarium and hopefully reopen down the road. My guest is Lassa Gustafson. He is the president and CEO of the aquarium. Thanks a lot for coming on this morning. Thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate it a lot. So can you describe the mood at the aquarium today, the last day of public operations there? Is it a sad day there? It's a sad day, but it's also a day, a day of pride. There's a lot of people who have been spending decades working uh, here at Vancouver Aquarium, and, and pride for a good reason. As, as you heard in the, in the clip now, there's been a lot of good things going on. The worst thing for me is that we're letting 209 very good people uh, go, and, and we lose the capacity. Uh, all their skills are gone. Hopefully very soon we'll be able to hire them back, but that, we're living in a cloud of uncertainty, really. So it's hard to say when that's going to happen. What will happen to the animals at the aquarium while the, while the aquarium is shut to the public? Because we're planning to come back, and hopefully stronger than we are already, uh, all the animals will be well taken care of. There's no plans of moving any animals anywhere. Uh, and we're keeping 75 highly skilled staff to make sure that they are well taken care of, fed and trained and socialized. So, so no major uh, uh, impact on the animals at all. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry for the, the troubles the aquarium is going through. I, I think it's an uh, iconic attraction in our, in our city. Um, can you explain why you got to this point? Because I remember when the aquarium, you guys shut down in March, and then you had the reopening with the limited visitors and social distancing in the aquarium, and, and that seemed to be working, I guess, okay uh, as it was. But why were you not able to keep going? So we closed, of course, the 17th of March because we're a responsible, responsible organization. We don't want to help distribute the, the virus. We opened again in the end of June, and we've, it's been a great success in terms of it's COVID safe. There's been no transmissions of the virus between the, no, no staff, no visitor, no animal has been infected. Unfortunately, because of the COVID uh, measures we need to put in place, we need to keep a much lower number of visitors uh, in the aquarium. Right. And as a result of that, the money we can make on the entrance fees on the gate doesn't cover the operational costs. So we've been losing money every day that we've been open. 
And it doesn't look like COVID is going anywhere anytime soon. We've got the highest numbers in British Columbia this week. So, so we really need to take the responsibility and make sure that we close now to reinvent or transform the aquarium into something that is pandemic safe. And hopefully we'll be able to open um, again soon. But we don't know when that is. Okay, speaking to Lasse Gustafson, he's the president of the Vancouver Aquarium. When you mentioned that you had to reduce the number of visitors to the aquarium, like can, can, you, can you put that on a percentage basis in terms of your, your capacity, yeah. how much it went down? So the last two months we've been operating on 20% of our, of uh, our normal yeah. numbers. We would, we would welcome in a normal year about a million visitors. We're not uh, anywhere near that, which means if you're breaking even as a not-for-profit and you lose 80% of your income, that's almost impossible, no? Yeah, so that's yeah, yeah. Okay, so the gate receipts from the visitors coming to visit the aquarium, how much of how much of that is of, of your revenue? That is that is about eighty uh, percent of our revenue for the yeah. aquarium operation. We also make some money out of the food uh, restaurants and the and the retail. For OceanWise, as the organized OceanWise is a conservation organization, the aquarium is about fifty percent of the economy. Uh, our research work, and I think you heard one of my colleagues this morning talking about the killer whale birth that will continue because it's not funded by gate also the educational programs uh, will continue slightly adapted more of it more of it is online but the the kids in in vancouver and beyond actually in 140 countries now get education about the oceans uh, from ocean wise Uh, and the conservation work like the ocean wise seafood label will also continue so it's a sad day for the aquarium uh, but there's hope because of some of the other stuff we will be able to continue and I hope we'll be able to open the aquarium soon because it's really important for us to meet with everyday Canadians and share our knowledge and, and our inspiration. And a lot of people have been visiting, of course, the aquarium, come out knowing more about the ocean and caring more about the ocean. That's important for us. Yeah, I think the, the last time I spoke to you was around the time that the aquarium shut down during the, at the start of the pandemic, as you described. And, and I recall at that time, the aquarium was hoping for some government assistance. Did that ever come through? Yeah, so the aquarium, as you know better than me, I'm not a Vancouverite. I've only been here a year and a half. But this is a very loved institution. So, so the community has been stepping up big time. We've been receiving support from, from all over Canada, but also from far away, from Japan, from Slovenia, from Finland. So this place is loved. Also, the, both the federal and provincial governments have been step, stepping up and giving us support, but not anywhere near what we actually need. Our forecast for 2020, if we continue with business as usual, we're losing somewhere between 10 and $14 million. For the year? For the year. Yeah. yeah. You've, you mentioned that the plan is to reopen the aquarium to the public in, in the future with a new sustainable model. Can you expand on that? What would a, a sustainable model look like in the future of the, for the Vancouver Aquarium? So if the pandemic doesn't go away, we will need to find a way where we can operate with much fewer visitors, which, of course, means we need to have much lower costs. Nobody knows what the pandemic aquarium looks like. There's not a single aquarium in North America right now making money. So the whole industry is is sort of scratching its head and trying to figure out what does it look like. And that's why we're now taking a pause in the programming so we can focus on figuring out what does a pandemic-safe aquarium look like. But the number of visitors is, of course, the most important thing because people would, would, will want to continue to, to stay apart. Yeah. And that means fewer visitors. Okay. Do you, 
some people there have been critics of the aquarium over the years notably the animal rights activists who think it's cruel to have animals on display for the public how do you how do you respond to the to the uh, the criticism that people we should not have marine mammals on display at the aquarium no, so the animals at Vancouver Aquarium, they are very well taken care of. They are healthy and they, they do well. Uh, we certify to the highest global standards when it comes to animal care. So I'm more than happy to talk to the animal rights activists. And as a matter of fact, I did invite them for discussions when I came to Vancouver a year and a half ago. And since then, we've seen much fewer protests. Uh, I think that that discussion is important. Animal care and animal health, animal welfare is super important for us. And I, I bet you we will be top ten percent in the world when it comes to providing a good facility and good care. Do you, is it possible that under a new sustainable model, as you describe, with a, a lower cost aquarium, that you could reduce uh, some of the animals on display, including some of the marine mammals like sea lions or sea otters? They would go away, maybe. So the otters are the most inspiring animals for people at the aquarium. <laughs> they are really loved. And one of the most important reasons that we have the animals is for people who do not, people who are not divers, they do not get to see the ocean under underwater. It's a great opportunity when you engage with the animals to learn more about the ocean. Uh, but in terms of what will the aquarium look like into the, in, in the future, I don't want to rule anything out because we really don't know what it's going to look like. Yeah, yeah. I think it's also important to, to reemphasize that there are a lot of, behind the scenes programs that go on at the aquarium the marine mammal rescue uh program the ocean ocean food certification program all the all the scientific research that goes on it's just it's just world-class stuff that that goes on there and is that all going to continue or will it, will that be phased phased back at all or cut back or will that continue at full strength so the marine mammal rescue center we had a little campaign and it didn't even take us 24 hours to secure the funding for the, net, for the full year. So all the animals that we've been taking care of this year will be taken care of until they are ready for release. Uh, the research continues because it's not depending on gate revenue, and the same for the conservation work. Uh, what will the future hold in terms of funding? We don't know. I think right now the governments, both the provincial and the federal, are generous trying to find ways to restart the Canadian economy. Two years from now, maybe they are poor. We don't know. Okay, last question for you. If there are people out there, they're fan perhaps they're fans of the aquarium, they want to help, is there a way that they can help? Can they donate? Yeah, you can still donate. And we, because we're still in operating the uh, operation, the, taking care of the animals still costs about a million dollars a month. So if you have the capacity and you're interested, please donate. Also, our online shop is still available. Uh, so if you want to buy some of the merchandise or some of the art, that would help too. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you. All right, welcome back to the show. Happy Labor Day to you. And because it's Labor Day, we wanted to bring on one of the top labor leaders in the province, Paul Farrow. He's the president of the QPBC Union. They represent school support workers, uh, among other workers in the province. And, of course, it's a big week uh, for those workers with back to school this week. Paul, thanks a lot for coming on. Uh, good morning, Mike. Happy Labor Day. Happy Labor Day to you, too. Let me, before we get into the nitty-gritty of back to school, let me <laughs> ask you about uh, Labor Day and... Uh, and what, it, and what it means to you. And I want to play this clip for you because I, I've covered a lot of union leaders in British Columbia over the years and a lot of tough, tough guys, you know, tough people at the top of these unions. 
The toughest guy I remember was a guy named Jack Monroe. Maybe you've heard of him. And uh, here's a li- here's let's go back into the wayback machine here. Jack Monroe. We're talking about the survival of our union and the survival of our membership is at stake. One thing about our union, the members had lots of input. It was really great. We were together, not only in the Iowa way, but in the trade union movement. That when we come out of this fight, win, lose, or draw, we're going to be together. We're going to have a goddamn union, and we'll live to fight another day. Okay, Jack Monroe, man. He was fiery. He used to get fired up in interviews and speeches and passed away several years ago, sadly. But, man, he, he was a larger-than-life character. What, what is the – what do you – you want to have any – do you want to comment on him, on him, Paul, first of all, and his legacy, and, and basically what uh, Labor Day means to you? Well, uh, Jack Monroe uh, was is uh, was a legend in uh, in in British Columbia, and yeah. you know spoke spoke his words. Uh, he he was uh, he was uh, always stood up uh, for the worker, always stood up uh, for the cause, and uh, certainly has has done a lot to uh, make British Columbia a better place for everyone. Yeah, and when you think back to those days, though, he was with the IWA, very powerful private sector union in the forest industry, and I don't know, it just seems like the power of labor, certainly in the private sector, has kind of gone down over the years. Would you would you acknowledge that? Would you say that? Absolutely, Mike. Uh, it's uh, it's troubling to know that the uh, union density uh, rates uh, in the private sector really has has uh, been hammered uh, over the years, in particular. Uh, under the uh, previous uh, Liberal government, uh, uh, the public sector, we CUPE represents now 100,000 workers in, in British Columbia, uh, yeah. over 700,000 workers in the country. Uh, you know, the public sector is, uh, you know, we're, is doing okay right now. Okay, the Labor Day for you, what does it mean for you personally as a, as a labor leader? Well, you know, it's a day to, to reflect back on all of our, our fights that, uh, that Jack just talked about. Uh, yeah. And talk about where we are as 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 a society, and and the labor movement is, especially now in this pandemic, uh, it is so important uh, to to make sure that workers are protected, make sure workers are compensated properly, and and, and uh, you know to to basically go after those bad employers. And unfortunately, there are some bad employers out there. Okay, speaking to Paul Farrow, he's the president of the QPBC Union. Let's talk about back to school here. Let me play a couple of more clips here for you and get your take on it. You're going to hear Premier John Horgan and also Dr. Bonnie Henry here talking about back to school. Let's have a listen. But I'm confident that the uh, steering group, which consists of administrators, uh, vice principals, principals, teachers, support workers, parents, trustees, are all working uh, to focus on making sure that we can get this right. I know for many parents, they are understandably concerned about the impact that's going to happen when their children go back to school in a few weeks. I know also that kids getting children back into the classroom is essential. It's essential for their emotional and social growth and well-being as well as for their educational needs okay back to school week is now here we got teachers back in class tomorrow for a couple of days of orientation and then kids back in class on thursday so paul farrow as the head of the union representing support workers in the schools what are your thoughts on uh, back to school this week well it's a whole lot of work has has been happened over the last uh, many weeks and months to get to to this day and you know, I, I think we need to remember that while, while you use the words back to, back to school week, uh, in actual fact, uh, Tuesday and Wednesday are really back to school for, for teachers and our 30,000 uh, members in CUPE, the support yeah. staff. You know, we need to figure out and, and make sure that everybody understands the safety plans that have all been agreed upon in, in every school district. 
And then later in the week, uh, students will slowly come back in and get orientated to figure out what the new classroom looks like. Because uh, it's going to be different, Mike. There's no doubt. There's a lo- we're all learning this together. Are you confident uh, as we as this week dawns here that the plan that's been put in place is a safe plan for kids and the people who work in the schools? Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, Mike. Uh, I think uh, everybody has done their best, uh, and I mean that absolutely sincerely. Uh, I have been in part of more consultation regarding this back to school work back-to-school plan than in probably over my last 30 years of being a union, a union leader activist. Uh, you know, everybody's trying their best, uh, and I think most importantly, we need to continue to remember and follow the lead of provincial health and the BC Centre for Disease Control. Uh, there, unfortunately, there's a, there's, there's, a, there's a few armchair quarterbacks out there who, who think that they know better, And quite frankly, uh, I back uh, Dr. Henry and uh, the advice that she's given us to date, and I think it would be a mistake not to follow her lead. Okay, your union represents a lot of school support workers, including education assistants, crucial part of the system in my opinion, uh, caretakers, school secretaries. IT officials in the schools. Who else do you guys represent there? Oh, we've got uh, we've got bus drivers, uh, yeah. custodians, uh, supervision aides, youth and family workers, uh, QP workers. Uh, what I call are the heart of the school system. You know, uh, it's it's often frustrating that uh, that we uh, that those members uh, seem to get forgotten about. But the school system yeah. will not run without QP members in British Columbia. What what are they telling you? Like, what are your people on the front lines of the system telling you about back to school? Well, what are their concerns? Yeah, Mike. You know, I think everybody. Is, you heard Dr. Henry. I think everybody's everybody's nervous because yeah. you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, but we've got to take it day by day, and, and we've got to play the long game on this. And, and no one is saying, hit the gas, full out, let's go 100 miles an hour. It's not, not going to happen that day. Every day we need to go and we need to evaluate. If something needs to be adjusted, I have the full confidence in the, in the system in, with the Minister of Education, Minister Fleming, uh, that, that we will pivot accordingly. Uh, you know, and, it's, and we've got to remember, and it's, I hate thinking about this, but the World Health Organization is saying possibly mid of 2021 before a vaccine uh, is even going to be uh, contemplated. Yeah, when you take a look at the plan, like one of the things that I think parents are concerned about are the, the ability to keep schools clean and, and, free of, and free of COVID. And your members are, play a crucial role there is with the custodians and caretakers in, yeah. in schools. Are you satisfied with the, the cleaning plan that's been put in place? Well, we're going we're gonna to find out. Uh, I'm pleased that the, uh, that the uh, first off, the provincial government uh, put in about uh, just under $50 million. We just had the announcement of the uh, $243 million from the, from the federal government. Uh, we were very uh, clear on our words for that federal money that it's got to go into school districts. Uh, and predominantly uh, cleaning and, and increased custodian staff is, is essential. And, and over the years, what's happened is, is there has been, again, under the previous government, there's been an erosion of custodians, and they were, they've actually were switched from daytime to, to, to uh, the night shift. Uh, we need daytime custodians. Now, I'm very pleased to hear that uh, school districts across British Columbia have been uh, posting and recruiting additional, additional uh, help in that field. Okay, I, I spoke to your counterpart last week on the show, Terry Mooring, the president of the teachers' union, and mm-hmm. one of the questions I asked her was, "Do you, do you rule out um, 
going to the BC Labor Relations Board if you're concerned about health and safety in the schools. We have seen this in other provinces. The Teachers Union Ontario, for example, went to the Labor Board there and said they believe the schools are unsafe. Can you foresee any kind of situation unfolding here in the next few days where there's a wrench gets thrown in the works and maybe your union or the BCTF goes to the BC Labor Relations Board if you're concerned about safety in the schools, or, or are you confident that won't happen? Well, I'm, I'm confident that, that there's the, there are the infrastructure and the communication channels are open in, in every school district. Uh, I've been sitting on, on stakeholder meetings with uh, my friend Terry Mooring for the past many, many months. And uh, certainly, I think we, we're all comfortable with the plan uh, and, and are ready to adapt. You know, if there's a safety concern, uh, going to the Labour Board is not the place to deal with that. It's dealing with your first off, uh, uh, dealing with the superintendent and the safety, safety committee on, on site. But WorkSafe BC is integral, integral to this back to, back to school plan. And, yeah. and, and we're going to be playing a, a, a daily role in this plan. All right, welcome back as we continue our special Labor Day show there. Uh, taking a look back on the show earlier today, you heard my conversation there with Keith Baldry. We're going way back in the way back machine there to the 1980s and the solidarity movement with the social credit government as we reminisce about uh, Labor Day. And I see that's getting a lot of chatter here on Twitter as we talked about that. But let's talk about uh, going back to another era in British Columbia, and that was the Liberal government of Gordon Campbell. And you might remember the 2001 election when Campbell and the Liberals won a massive landslide in British Columbia, the NDP government at the time. Very, very unpopular. He campaigned on a promise of a new era in British Columbia. My next guest has written a book about that. George Abbott, the former long-serving Liberal MLA, former cabinet minister, held many different cabinet portfolios over his career. His new book, Big Promises, Small Government, Doing Less with Less in the BC Liberal New Era. And I'm very pleased to welcome you to the show. George, it's nice to talk to you. Uh, delighted to be with you, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. Well, we could, let me have play this for you. This is um, shortly after the 2001 election. Gordon Campbell won that massive mandate. Won ev- the Liberals won every seat in the legislature except for two, I recall. And here he is talking about that new era and the new mandate for the Liberals in British Columbia. Gordon Campbell, 2001. Uh, it's been a government that's been racked by scandal for a decade. Most people know someone who's lost their job or even their home uh, in British Columbia. And they're really quite tired of BC lagging behind the rest of the country. We used to be a leader in the country, and I think they'd like us to get back to be leaders. So there will be a lot of people that will be holding the NDP to account with their vote. And I hope there'll be a number of people that will be excited about where we think we can take the province. Okay, it's Gordon Campbell back in 2001. What do you recall of that election, George, and the NDP were so unpopular there after the fast ferries and the fudget budget and some of the other problems? And... Man, oh man, the Liberals the Liberals just steamrolled the NDP in that election. What do you recall of that election campaign? Well, it was uh it was definitely an interesting time and I mean there was absolutely no question that uh the NDP were were very unpopular in the day. It was very clear that the uh BC Liberals under Gordon Campbell would be forming the government. The size of the mandate, 77-2, as you noted, uh, I think was uh, pretty astonishing. It was the largest margin ever in B.C. history. 
So uh, in lots of ways, as I look back on that period, the size of the margin was not a healthy thing. Uh, We likely would have been far better off as a province, and I suspect the B.C. Liberals as a government would have been better off had the uh, had the numbers been somewhat tighter and uh, and uh, people didn't get uh, kind of carried away with uh, what their opportunities might be with that kind of uh, massive majority. Yeah, I remember the NDP leader at the time, Ujjal Desange, making uh, kind of a similar argument. He, he basically conceded defeat before voting day, which was amazing. I'm not, I don't think I've ever seen that before or since, where he said, look, I know we're going to lose. But don't give the Liberals a massive mandate, like give us a little bit of a voice in opposition. It did not happen. The NDP won only two seats, uh, Joy McPhail and Jenny, and Jenny Kwan at the time. And I remember the Liberals, George, they were kind of mean to those two, liberal, those two NDP MLAs, wouldn't give them official party status in the legislature and stuck them in some crummy offices in the, in the basement. Your thoughts? Yeah. Well, I, I agree with that assessment, actually. I think, you know, looking back on it, particularly, uh, those two MLAs worked incredibly hard and, and I think were, were very effective as, a, as an opposition of two. I do think it was unfortunate that uh, the Liberal government of the day declined to recognize them uh, as official opposition and thereby give them the additional resources that, right. that go with that. So uh, I, I agree with the assessment. I think uh, there could have been a more a generous approach and uh, uh, perhaps a more thoughtful way of dealing with that issue. Okay, George, you've written a very interesting book looking back at the Liberal government there of Gordon Campbell, and people may recall that the the Liberal election platform in 2001 was called the New Era for British Columbia, and day one of that new era was Gordon Campbell delivering on a dramatic tax cut, 25% across the board, tax cut and in income taxes. He kept his promise, right? But you, do you think that was a mistake now looking back? Well, I think the first thing that uh, I should note, because I, I make this argument in the book, and of course there's lots of evidence to support it, is that the the new era called for a dramatic tax cut. It never called for a tax cut of 10%, 15%, or, or 25%. 15% was the tax cut promised in 96. At other points, uh, Campbell had indicated a 10%, so it was unclear. Uh, the decision after the 2001 election to make it 25 uh, had uh, had very considerable implications for, for, for a couple of reasons. First of all, the 25% cut, the personal income tax cut, uh, represented uh, about a billion dollars in lost revenues, uh, absent rebound uh, revenues from it. Uh, but there were other tax cuts that went along with it as well in the corporate side. So it was about $2.2 billion whole. Because uh, British Columbia was not in recession, but certainly on the edge of it in those early years of the 2000s, it ended up being a $4.4 billion hole. Uh, the health and education budgets were so-called protected. That is, uh, they, 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 they did not decline. So uh, by February 2004, when uh, a, ba- a balanced budget was promised, the 30% of government that was not health and education had to find the dollars to uh, uh, to make up that gap uh, because there were not rebound revenues. There was not the miracle of, of tax cuts where they pay for themselves uh, straight out of the gate. Uh, that did not happen, uh, I think, in large measure because of the economic of the period. Uh, but also, I think, to, you know, in lots of ways, that's a bit of a myth that they pay for themselves. They don't always do that. 
Okay, speaking to George Abbott, the former liberal MLA and cabinet minister on his new book, looking back at the, the Gordon Campbell government in, in British Columbia, you mentioned that that big tax cut that the Campbell government delivered on day one, 25% across the board, it blew a big hole in the, in the provincial budget, a $4.4 billion deficit, and then there was a lot of cuts, cuts in government spending. As I recall, George, you were in one of the tougher ministries there as the uh, Minister of Community Aboriginal and Women's Services there. And was, was that a ministry that, that, in particular, that you found difficult to, to handle with some of those budget cuts? Yeah, it was, uh, it was tough. Uh, I do think my, my friend uh, Gordy Hogue at Children and Family Development ha- had an even tougher road. And I think Murray Cole in, uh, in social development, human resources, uh, was uh, in, in a tough situation as well. But at uh, Community Aboriginal Women's Services, we had a 35% uh, budget cut, uh, expectations of 50% cut in, in uh, our, uh, our staff. Uh, our, our ministry staff, uh, so it was tough. Uh, things like uh, supported child care uh, saw saw big cuts, and uh, it meant uh, a tougher situation for for people, particularly single mothers, uh, sort of just on the uh, on the edge of being able to survive economically. I think it uh, it made times tougher than they really needed to be. Okay, looking back at that in your time serving in, in Campbell's cabinet, you were at the cabinet table there back then, George, when these tax cuts were imposed and those budget cuts were inflicted. Um, what are your thoughts on that now? Do you, I mean, do you regret, regret going along with it, or do you think you should have spoke up more forcefully about it, about the cuts at the time? Well, the, uh, the, the cut was made on, on day one, and I, and I devote a lot of time to this in the, in the book. Uh, the cuts were made on day one uh, at, in fact, our first cabinet meeting of, uh, of the new government. I mean, literally, we had been uh, less than 24 hours in our ministerial portfolios. Uh, that was the first announcement made at the first cabinet meeting was that the cut was going to be made. Uh, obviously, wow. I was hoping, uh, along with every other colleague in cabinet, that uh, that just as had been promised, tax cuts would pay for themselves. That we wouldn't have uh, those uh, those big cuts that might otherwise be produced. But uh, you know, looking at Ontario in the late 1990s, which uh, the New Era document did do, uh, indicated that yeah, tax cuts can pay for themselves. But they pay for themselves when, as Ontario was in the day, they're enjoying 4.7 percent annual increases in. Uh, and economic growth, it does not. When you are you are having uh, less than one percent uh, economic growth, as we did in BC, so big differences. But you know, when you're in cabinet, you put your head down. You're doing your very best. You're trying to make the best of uh, every dollar that's provided to you from government, and and you hope desperately that things are going to turn around. Um, and I suppose to a limited extent they had by 2005, but it was, right. uh, I think, in lots of ways, just a very unpleasant period period in in government all right let's talk about the disappointing end to the vancouver canucks playoff run on friday night now what an incredible performance it was by rookie goaltender thatcher demko pressed into service after the canucks goalie was injured this guy was just incredible remember they were down 3-1 to the vegas golden knights this kid stands on his head 
uh, blocked all those shots in those two games the Canucks won to tie it up for Game 7. He almost did it again. He almost did it again on Friday night with another unbelievable performance in the, uh, between the pipes for the Canucks. But, man, those Vegas Golden Knights were just unstoppable in the Canucks' own end there, and eventually they broke through. Canucks out of the playoffs. Yeah, I know. It's disappointing. Our own John Jang, he caught up with Wyatt Arndt. He's a Canucks writer for The Athletic and The Daily Hive to talk about the uh, Canucks season in this series. And his first question was about the positives. What should Canucks fans be happy about from that series with Vegas? I think the biggest thing for me this entire run has just been uh, the performance of the young core. It wasn't like, you know, Brandon Sutter caught fire and, and took them along and something you may not want to be able to rely on going down the stretch uh, next year, but they had all the young kids kind of step up. You had your Elias Patterson have, you know, I think kind of a statement game almost in game two, and you had Quinn Hughes who looked like he was battling something, but he was still able to produce for the team. And, you know, J.T. Miller, again, you know, looked like maybe he was struggling with a wrist injury, but he was still able to produce for the team. And even earlier in the playoff run, you had Bo Horvath had his, like, you know, those co-drag goals and you know, it just felt like all the young kids stepped up and kind of showed what they can do. And for a team that, you know, has issues elsewhere, at least if you know you're relying on that young core to, you know, push you forward, if you're a Canucks fan, you should be pretty optimistic about that. And I think that's what makes it so exciting for Canucks fans wide, is that these are young players that are looking so natural and so smooth in the playoffs. Some of them, in fact, most of them, it's their first time into the postseason. Maybe not for Bo Horvat, who had a playoff run in his rookie year, but I'll throw him in the same category of how these guys looked so good in their first playoff run. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I, I kind of wrote about while watching these teams. Like the Canucks obviously have a long history of kind of, you know, not the greatest uh, playoff history in the world, uh, and it seems like the hockey gods have a cool, uh, you know, playing a cool joke on this franchise at times, but this young team, uh, you look at 2002, look at the West Coast Express, and, uh, you know, that was, one of the, that was probably the best run from that group, but Bertuzzi had a terrible playoff run that year, um, and, you know, Nazem did okay, but the core didn't really have the kind of season we saw this year, and for the fact that, you know, yeah, you're right, it's Queen Hughes is very, like, still a rookie, and he has this kind of run. You have Elias Patterson, who comes out and, you know, dominates, and so it feels like this team and this core is just kind of ready to compete, and we saw it when they got J.T. Miller, when he showed up, you know, he instantly became a leader on this team. It seemed like he was ready for those big moments. And, you know, there was talk about how, like, maybe, you know, in the past, his playoffs hadn't been that great. But then he comes to Vancouver, and he had, you know, it was a point-per-game player in the playoffs. And you see him kind of taking Jay for 10 under his wing. So, for, again, for the team going forward, for the fact that all the young kids were the guys that stepped up, like, that's got to give the team a, a lot of confidence going forward that if they can put the right pieces around them, that they can maybe take the next step, for sure. All right, so that was the good, and certainly Canucks fans have a lot to be excited about, but uh, I'm sure, uh, like many others watching the series against Vegas, why a lot of the bad stuff came up. Uh, when you look at this Canucks team, what do they need to work on moving forward? Uh, yeah, obviously I think the bottom six and the defense are, are, are going to come up. Um, I, I know that by the end of that series, obviously you guys faced Minnesota and St. Louis and then Vegas. They're all big teams, and I know they wore down and were probably out of gas by the time the series ran over, but part of the reason for being out of gas is the fact they couldn't move the puck into their own zone enough, and they started taking a lot of those big hits. Um, I think in today's NHL, we saw Shea Theodore just rip up the Canucks. Um, obviously, the Canucks have Quinn Hughes, but a lot of Vegas' defense was fast. The team was fast. I think speed more than ever is something that the team needs, and they need that puck movement. And Nothing against Edler or Chris Tanev. I think they, you know, did as good as they could do, but Edler's getting older. Um, Chris Tanev, you know, is also getting older, and their defense, you know, they need to be quicker. And the bottom six production, we all saw Tyler Mott. We all loved the effort he gave. Charlie Hustle was awesome out there. 
but the bottom six didn't produce in that Vegas series. And by the time the series ended, Game Seven, like they were just—they had nothing to offer. They couldn't counterattack. They couldn't get in the offensive zone. Um, like I would never want to watch Game Seven again, just because it was like it was not good hockey. Uh, without Demko in that, who knows how bad that game would have been. And for this team with all those contracts and that bloated bottom six, that's Jim Benning's biggest thing is how to get out of kind of some of those contracts he handcuffed himself with. Like, can you find a way? To move, uh, you know, some of the, you know, the Erickson money or the Sutter money. Um, you know, you're paying Jay Beagle a lot of money. Uh, Roussel, who I do enjoy as a player, he also struggled in that series. So I, I think the, the blueprint for the team going forward is to kind of look at that Tyler Mott player and be like, yeah, there's a, there's a guy that was cheap and provided us probably our best production for the bottom six. And unfortunately, it's probably not going to be easy to, to find more of those players when you're stuck with those contracts. But that's, you know, Jim Benning's job now is to figure out how to solve that. Well, that takes us into the offseason. You mentioned his name, Thatcher Demko. What an astounding playoff run for him. But now you've got a bit of a dilemma. What do you do moving forward if you're the Canucks and you're Jim Benning? Do you stay with Markstrom as your number one, or do you look at Demko's body of work and say, boy, this guy's younger and cheaper. Maybe this is the way to go. Yeah, and that's, there's a, that's probably the most interesting situation for me because there's a lot of moving parts there. Like It also comes down to the fact that, say, they give Markstrom a deal. Does Demko want to stick around? Does he now feel that, hey, I've proved myself to be a starter. Let me go. Um, like, in an ideal world, and I think other people have said it as well, like, next season with COVID, the this, this schedule's probably a bit condensed. You're going to want two good goalies. If the Canucks can somehow find a way to get through one more season with these two guys, that's probably their best bet. Um, now as to who to go with moving forward... Three-game sample sizes are tricky. It's kind of like going all in on a World Junior performance. You kind of want to, you know, maybe not go that quick on something like that. But, you know, knowing the pedigree of Demko, uh, having Ian Clark in your back pocket kind of consult him. If, if they chose to go with Demko, I would not be against that. I think that's a solid choice. I think that showing he did those three games showed he's ready for the big stage. I mean, look at the kid. He comes in, hasn't played hockey in months, and puts up the three biggest games of his career. Like, that is definitely something you want to look forward to. But... Not to take away that, you look at Martian, you know, what he's done. Uh, his MVP season, he's been probably their, one of the best players the last two years. The only thing for me with Marstrom is committing long-term to goalies at that age in today's NHL is just a bit of a, a gamble for me. So, like, if he comes in saying, hey, give me that five years, seven million, whatever, plus deal, that's something I'd be a bit leery of. And it's not like it's something against Marstrom. Like, he's earned that. Like, this is a guy who's been trying to battle the number one goalie his whole entire life. He should cash out when he can, but... I just don't know if Vancouver will be the place for him if he wants like a long-term deal. Well, it's not Vancouver hockey unless you've got a goaltender dilemma. I don't want to call it a controversy. I'll just call it a dilemma uh, for us to talk about here. All right, another thing to keep an eye out for the offseason coming up is the future of that defense. Uh, Chris Tanev and Troy Stetcher, who I know you love to call Troy from Richmond. What's going on there? <laughs> I think oh, I mean, that's one of the, the things about the bottom six loaded contracts. Like, they might not be able to afford uh, Troy from Richmond. Like, what if? He goes to arbitration and he gets that three or four million dollars. Will they find a room for the lineup? But I think he is an extremely uh, valuable member of the lineup because they can play him in the top four. They can also play him in the bottom pairing. And every year it seems like he starts at the bottom and works the way up by the end of the season. And I think by the end of the playoffs, he again was one of the best defensemen. I think he's got you know decent speed and and yeah, his offense might not be there, but he's one of the smartest players on the team. Tanev is such an interesting case because, you know, obviously Hughes loves playing with him. Um, and I think he does, he's obviously been a great player for the Canucks. But there's also another guy that, like, his body, you know, how, how long can you trust that? Like, his body to keep up. And he's the kind of guy that will take 18 hits in one play to make sure he gets that puck safe to Hughes. And I think people, I would love to play with that guy. Like, he would take all the hits in the world and help me get the puck out of my own zone. 
but it's a case of, you know, you know, how much money does he want? How much do you want to commit to a defenseman? And I don't think it's going to be easy to fix up their defense. I don't think it's going to actually get, the, you know, the speed players in life right away. So I would want to keep Tanner. But, again, it's just like Markstrom. There's a, there's a price point where you just you can't do it. And so a lot of it comes down to can Benning find a way to offload some of the other contracts on the team, but with, you know, the kind of flat cap coming up, I don't think a lot of teams are going to be open to that. So if they're going to make sacrifices, my gut says they would probably move on from Stetcher, but if they move on from Canada, it would not be something that I don't think it's a bad idea either. All right, that's Wyatt Arndt. He uh, covers the Vancouver Canucks for The Athletic and the Daily Hive in conversation there with our own John Jang, talking about the disappointing end to the Canucks playoff drive john joins me now john good interview there and like you said you covered kind of both sides of it disappointing for sure but Mm -hmm. i guess a lot of reason for canucks fans to be optimistic with some very talented uh young young players there could be around for a long time it's the power of this team moving forward is that they're all so young and so good and they haven't physically hit their peak right? So Elias Pettersson is 20 years old. Uh, Quinn Hughes is still just 19. Like These kids are just that. They're kids. I can't wait to see what they're like. Maybe not six years from now, but uh, even a year from now. And, and how much better are they going to be because they'll be that much stronger? That's the exciting part. Okay. Did you watch the game on Friday? Of course you did, right? Like, what did you think yeah. during during the game? Like, at one point, my me and my buddies were joking around, like, oh, maybe it's kind of the old rope-a-dope. They're just, the Canucks are just trying to tire <laughs> these guys out, taking shots on them, but didn't work out but I thought that goalie almost pulled it off again oh Demko has been brilliant Uh, for for my money I would go with Demko moving forward but I know that's a controversial take Uh, I I did watch that game and I thought you know what people have a right to be frustrated because the Canucks made it close but they unfortunately wasted a five-minute major power play and yes Yes. you cannot say that you have deserved a chance to win the game when you waste a five-minute power play like that so unfortunately they did themselves in okay good stuff John thanks a lot Thank you, Mike.